Welcome to Interviews with Innocence, a podcast about spirituality, consciousness, and exploring the wisdom our children bring into this world. I believe that our very young children are our greatest teachers. After all, they're the masters of living in the present moment, bubbling in unconditional love, enjoying the messiness of life, and curious about the universe in all its dimensions. The pure essence that young children exhibit lives within all of us. My hope is that these interviews will help us discover, embrace, and connect with the sacred core of childhood that resides within each of our hearts. I am your host, Marla Hughes. Before I begin interviewing Dr. Moody today, I would like to um, let you know that the physician that he is referring to, and he then calls him by name later in the interview, Dr. Jeff O'Driscoll, I interviewed two weeks ago. So please go back and listen to Dr. O'Driscoll's interview. It was um, it was very enlightening with many stories. Also, I um, have been doing some, some episodes on near-death experiences because um, when people come back and the children come back, they just have so much to teach us. And that's the reason I'm so intrigued by this concept. So I will do some here and there and, um, of course, a lot of other subjects too. So without further ado, here we go. Hello, today I am so honored to have Dr. Raymond Moody on the program. Dr. Moody is a philosopher, psychologist, physician, author, and grief counselor. He holds both a PhD from the University of Virginia and an MD from the Medical College of Georgia. In 1975, Dr. Moody coined the term near-death experience in his best-selling book, Life After Life. I think there's been 20 million copies sold. For over 50 years, Dr. Moody has researched some of life's greatest questions. His most recent book is Making Sense of Nonsense, The Logical Bridge Between Science and Spirituality. I've had the honor to spend time with Dr. Moody in Athens, Georgia, where we began talking about what our very young can teach us about spirituality and consciousness. Raymond, I am honored to call you my friend, and I want to welcome you to the program. Thank you so much, Marla, for having me on your program. I'm just really excited about this. Yes, me too. So um, I, I almost can't believe that people don't know you, but some of my listeners do not. They've never really heard of you or your work. So can you just tell us a little bit about how you began researching near-death experiences? Well, yes, I guess it really traces back to my childhood interest in things that don't make sense. I was um, a great lover of astronomy. That's the first thing I wanted to be. And um, so, and, I, and also my family, my father had been through World War II as a, uh, a medic in the Pacific Theater. And I'm, he was a surgeon. I'm sure he saw just terrific stuff. And yeah. as I put it together subsequently, that was why I gather he was so hostile to religion. And um, so my, um, my mother's mother was very humorous about religion. So I never knew of it as a serious thing. I was interested right. in astronomy. And, um, and reading Lewis Carroll and Dr. Seuss were my main childhood activities, looking through a telescope and reading books. And um, so 
literally in high school, intending to be an astronomy major. Yes. And so, but I had gotten interested in philosophy a little bit in high school, so I took a philosophy course just because. But then the first thing they gave us was Plato's Republic and Marla, just with in the first few pages of reading that book, I could show where you where on the page. I said, "Hey, this is what I'm gonna do." Wow! And so, uh, and Plato to this day is still my hero. Which sounds so quaint until you get to know this kind of amazing guy he was. Yeah. I mean, why are we still reading twenty three hundred years later? Right. Right. So. Um, the, what the Republic is about is about the question of justice vis-a-vis -vis the question of life after death. And so in that dialogue, Plato talks with, about several of the ways that the Greeks sort of thought that you could go to the other world on a temporary basis. And it culminates in this story, the of a warrior who was believed dead on the battlefield and had an experience of going through a passageway into another world and then then sort of coming back to his body. And I was just very intrigued about that because I remember the thing to me was, I thought, well, if Plato takes this question of an afterlife seriously, you know, maybe I should too. I mean, I... <laughs> He was, you know, he was very persuasively arguing that it's a very important question. So I remember asking my um, professor, Dr. Hammond, about this. And he said, yeah, these early Greek philosophers um, studied cases in which people had apparently died and revived. And so that's, but I, it never entered my mind that it might be something other than ancient Greece. Mm -hmm. So I, um, I felt, you know, for about three years I knew of these things, but didn't realize they pertain to the modern world when in 1965 I met Dr. George Ritchie, who was a professor of psychiatry at UVA at that time who had had such an experience, and I listened to Dr. Ritchie, and I didn't know what to think about whether the experience was, quote, real or not, but I knew full well that Dr. George Ritchie was real, and I can say that even today. It's like he, George Ritchie was the person I ever knew in my life. So this was a kind of wake-up call, but certainly not anything that led me to conclude there's an afterlife, rather that there's this phenomenal experience. And to make a long story short, I got my PhD in philosophy in 1969 at the University of Virginia at the age of 24 years old, which is, <laughs> um, you know, we both can realize at our age, Marla, or at our stage of maturity, that there was something very wrong with somebody who would have a PhD in philosophy at the age of 24, right? Especially since then, I went on three years and I was being a philosophy professor. Then in 72, I went and went to medical school and wow. graduated with my MD in January of uh, 1976. So I had 
two doctoral degrees before I was 31, which wow. was a sick, sick, sick individual. Huh? <laughs> and, or brilliant. Well, yeah, brilliant, but sick. I mean, in the sense of just all your time just consuming books. And so, um, but during that time, I, I met lots of people with near-death experiences, my philosophy students, uh, some of my colleagues at East Carolina University, when they found out I was studying this, came to me about their experiences. I went to medical school. My professors were very, very wonderful about this, telling me about their own experiences or referring me to patients they had who they know, had known had these experiences. So that's how I got into this. And then in 1974, I wrote this book you mentioned, Life After Life. And um, so that's my involvement in that. Interesting. Now, in terms of those who don't know what I'm talking about, um, basically what I found and what many others have found is that there is a common pattern of experience that occurs among people when they come close to death. And this is, for example, in cardiac arrest where people, uh, their heart stops beating for a period of time and they're revived. It's very common in those circumstances for people to have profound spiritual experiences that no matter how articulate or smart they may be, they say, I just can't describe it to you. There are no words. Right. But in terms of the words they can bring to it, it's similar all over the world. People tell you that uh, they may actually hear the doctor say some such word as, oh, my God, he's dead, or we've lost her, or words like that. And a very common reaction I hear from people all over the world at this point is they say, I, I've heard a number of people say almost exactly these same words, and many of them express the same thought, which is, I have never been so alive as when I heard that doctor say I was dead. Wow. Because people say that far from being foggy or feel like they're dreamlike or that they experience a state that is, as they say, more real than real. And what they say is that they feel that they leave their physical bodies, they can see their physical body now seemingly deceased or all in a semen of a wreck or a, you know, an operating table or whatever. But they say from their point of view, their consciousness is far from being blunted it's heightened expanded uh, yeah yeah the sense of vision is sharper the um and people say that it's not like they hear um they hear a voice but rather that they um that they um sorry this thing is acting up here oh no problem yeah, okay, good. That um, um, they, they feel that they enter into a passageway of some sort, right? Right. And they go through this passageway and they come out on the other side into an incredible, brilliant, warm, loving, comforting light, far brighter than anything you've ever experienced while you're alive. And yet, 
just joy and peace is going into this. Um, uh, and they say in that light, they often describe relatives or friends of theirs who are there in a, not in a physical form, but they say it's a form, but not a physical form. Right. Not, a, not a material body like we experience, but they recognize these people as their uh, deceased relatives. Many of them tell us about going through panoramic memory in which every event of their lives is displayed around them in a sort of hologram. And they say they experience this not from the temporal point of view, because there is no time, but that everything is there instantaneously in a single instant. And um, yet when they relate it to us, they have to relate it as though it were a sequence because language is sequential. Right. This is one of the most common things people say, again, as I emphasize that no matter how smart, no matter how many languages, they just say there aren't any words for this. Right. And um, in that panorama, they say that um, when you see yourself in this panorama doing some action, then when that action has its consequence, you are embedded in the consciousness of the pe person with whom you're interacting. The life so if you see yourself doing something mean-spirited to someone, yeah, then you feel the good, the sad feelings. Yes. Hurt. If you see yourself doing a kind-hearted action that is reflected back in the feelings you receive in the review of this. And it, um, you know, it's just very profound for people. Yeah. And uh, generally speaking, they say they don't want to come back from this. Some say mm -hmm. that. I just told those had to go back. They didn't give me any reason. They just you gotta finish something. Other right. people right. they were given a choice. You can either go on with this experience you're having or you can uh, return to the life you were being in were leading. And not so surprisingly, all the ones that I've talked to about this, right, chose to come back. But right. What's interesting is they say it wasn't for me that I chose to come back. I would rather stay in the light, but it's always on behalf of some relative who is in need, or most commonly it's because I have young children left to raise. Right, right, yeah. Wow, fascinating. Well, what's so profound, just like Dr. Morse's stories, is that from the children is that you hear these these are personal friends and i know that something that really uh, sort of i i've heard you say that you give up and one of those stories was because of um jeff olson and dr yeah. jeff driscoll yeah so you know you take the near-death experience and then the shared shared death experience that you've studied could you could you just talk about that for a minute Yes, everybody listening to this knows that there's a standard way of debating about this in the Western civilization. And it goes back literally to Plato and Democritus, who lived about the same time. Plato looked at these experiences and he took them as indicators of an afterlife. But Democritus had figured out that matter is made up of tiny little invisible bits, too small to be seen, and he called them atoms. And so in his writing about this, Democritus said, you know, this is 
there's no such thing as a moment of death, he said. This is a process. And he said this, these t stories people tell us are the, uh, just the residual biological activity in the body. So the same debate we have today, right? Right, right. And um, one of my favorite philosophers, I guess my favorite philosopher of the 21st century, 20, 20th century, was J.L. Austin, who's just a wonderful, I mean, just a really great philosopher. And he made a comment one time, which is so true. He said, you know, if you look at a, at a debate that just goes on and on and on forever without any progress, he says, what you really need to do is you can't look at what the uh, opposing parties seem to disagree on. He said, but in a situation like that's what's really going on. It, the problem is what the parties agree on, but right. are, not, are not acknowledging. And right. this is exactly in this, this standard debate, which people love to hold on to the standard way of thinking about it because the material is basically kind of threatening to people. Right, that? right, exactly. It's, you know, for many people, it undermines their fundamentalist religion or or their belief in in matter and science you know that and so so um, the trouble with this framework of debate is that identically the same experience that we call the the near-death experience which occurs when somebody has a cardiac arrest say and is revived and gets out of their body and sees this light and meets the deceased relatives and undergoes a panoramic memory view. All of those same things occur, not just to die and return, but also to the bystanders who mm -hmm. are around when somebody else passes away. And this includes quite a lot of doctors, for example, who tell me that they empathically co-live part of their patients dying life review and I, but it's also very common among the relatives and other bystanders at the death of someone that as the person in the bed dies the bystander themselves may feel that they are go out of their body and they, they go up part way toward this light with the dying person or lots of people including a lot of doctors tell me that uh, when somebody passes away they see this indescribable light sort of leaving the body Right. Um, and lots of cases where people uh, at the bedside actually empathically co-live the dying life review of the person. Wow. And that just seems so extraordinary and a little bit uncomfortable, to tell you the truth. I mean, I, bet. I am not even, I'm hoping to recuse myself from my own life review. <laughs> Well, that's the judgment. The idea of somebody, a spectator sitting in there, maybe with a bowl of popcorn <laughs> or something, you know? And I, it I, sounds so outrageous. But Marla, what I've realized is, you know, as a psychiatrist, I learned that we've all got pretty much the same secrets. You know, it's like the patient may sit there for two weeks, kind of shifting in their chair, you know, and eventually they come out with the big secret, right? Well, you've realized I've heard that same secret three times already. This right, week. right. So that's how, and so this is remarkably natural. Include, um, physician told me that he was uh, called to the ER to 
resuscitated patient. He had never laid his eyes on me. And when he got him doing the resuscitation, he said, he, this guy's life kind of sprang up around him and he saw all these images. And, and he commented on that, that it was just a perfectly natural thing that as a doctor, you know, he had seen everything by then. So, you know, and yeah. so this is really mysterious. And this is obviously if the bystander is having the same experience, then it can't be the oxygen deprivation to the brain, if you see. But, but, I've heard thousands of these stories, Marla, and and I can't wait to hear the next one. Yeah. And then to segue a little bit about, you know, you put together the near-death experience with the shared, shared death experiences, and um, you... Let's talk about these pre-birth memories. And I'd love for you to share the stories of your children that when they talked about telling you about choosing, choosing you as, as a parent. Yes. When I lived in a regular neighborhood in Charlottesville, Virginia, <laughs> in the late 70s and through the mid-80s, I, and, and, you know, the neighbors were accountants and car salesman and a professor of economic. I mean, this was not a neighborhood where people were interested in near-death experience. <laughs> right. I totally understand that. <laughs> yeah, but they knew I was a psychiatry person and I that I'd studied these near-death experiences. So it happened multiple times that the laborers would say, you know, I'm worried about little Bobby. I mean, he's four years old and he's talking about a previous life somewhere. And I would talk with the kid and the fan, and you know, they were always worried about, does this mean he's mentally ill? And right. I didn't know what it was, but I was always could reassure the parents, no, no, this is not the thing yeah. you need to worry about. But uh, that was on the level I experienced. It was just people asking me. Right. Then, I do remember though, you talking about your daughter, your adopted daughter, when she told you yeah. that she, that's, yes, that's yes. Exactly right. Yeah. Because now flash forward, now flash forward. I'm at a more mature state of existence. And <laughs> in my fifties, I adopted two wonderful kids. Um, Carter, who's now 21, who is Mexican-American by heritage. And Carter is, uh, we adopted him literally at birth. And um, Carol Ann is Blackfeet Indian from Montana. We the same deal. We adopted her at birth. And um, also, we don't go to church. I mean, right. We don't go to take these kids to, we live in Alabama, and we're afraid of snakes. <laughs> You're and, right. Uh, we're not church people. And um, we don't talk about life after death. We talked about how to pay the phone bill, what's for dinner, the kids at school, what's on at the movies. So these kids did not get this. But both of them related very eloquently at early age their remembrance of where they came from and why they came to us. It was really just extraordinary. I mean, I Carter, when he was five years old, um, we were watching TV and I was flipping through the channels with the remote control and flipped through what turned out to be the National Geographic channel. But when I did, Carter became very animated and said, Dad, Dad, that's my village. Well, back in it's a documentary about village life in China. And, and, and um, so, <clears throat> excuse me, he 
he went on and he could tell that I was <clears throat> kind of incomprehending. <clears throat> and as though to orient me, he said, yeah, yeah. He said, <clears throat> before <clears throat> I came to you and mommy, I was with my other mommy and daddy in China and my brothers and sisters. Wow. <clears throat> Still no response from me. So he, <clears throat> at the end he said, and yeah. And he said, and then I was up in the trees watching you and mommy down in the grass. And I knew exactly what he was talking about. Because mm -hmm. In March of 1993, Cheryl and I had been this, in this archaeological site in Greece. And we were sort of just off the plane and we were exhausted. So the attendant at this uh, archaeological site said, just he saw that we were tired. So he said, just lie down in the grass over there and take a nap. And there were these beautiful trees all around. So what we were talking about was adopting a baby. Wow. Um, same deal with Carol Ann when she, I guess about nine, she and I were taking our, we had, we took long walks in the country and at a certain point, which is an old bridge, she liked to sit on the bridge and talk. And one day she just said, I don't like this place. Plainly referring to the world. Wow. So I was kind of startled. And so she then said, then she said, yeah, I know she said, when you die, you just go up and you be with God. And she said, and he, he holds you up there to all the people you know while you're alive have died. And then he sent you, sends you back as another person. And I said, well, why do you think so? What may, and just pointing inward like this, she said, I know, I just know in my mind. Wow. She said that again as the orienting. She said, and then, yeah, and I was up, I was up there with God, and he pointed you out to me. And he said, you've got to go down to be his daughter. And I said, well, how did you feel about that? And she said, oh, I didn't want to do it. <laughs> she said, I wanted to stay with my guy, but she said, but he pushed me, just doing twice with the hands like that, pushed me. Oh, wow. And she called it, she called, um, she said, Gotti, my Gotti. My Gotti. Yeah. I wanted to stay with my Gotti. Wow. Yeah. And um, so she, um, and, and you know, I did, my wife and I have never asked them about these things because, you know, if you start asking questions, you're going to wonder, did I shape the story? We just right. Yeah. And so for that reason, they both still talk about this some. But wow, that's fascinating. So I know you say that um, the questions also from a lot of your um, research and interviews with people, that the, the questions that are asked of them is, are, how did you learn to love and what did you do for the world? Can you tell us, just mention? Yeah, that's what people say most often in terms of, you know, one thing I learned as a psychiatrist is that almost everybody is chasing something. Mm. It's amazing the things that people chase to me. It's like fame, for example, or or um, uh, money, or or money, or yes, 
you know, all the things. And I used to think how odd it was that everybody except me was chasing something. When I heard, then I mentioned that to my supervisor, Dr. Buckman, who smiled and said, now how old were you, Raymond, when you got your second doctorate? <laughs> so the point was real well taken. I was chasing knowledge, right? Right, right. But no matter what people were chasing before this, they say this experience assures them that what what this is all about is learning to love. That's what everybody says. And then another thing they say, and this is interesting, um, they say that when scenes come up in which they had been learning something, that um, this being they're with often says to them, not in words, but that they they become aware of the thought that even after you come over here, this process of learning is something that goes on. As George Ritchie said, he said, this process of learning, I gather, is something that goes on for eternity. Right. You know, it's just, well, I remember... Institution. I remember listening to one of your interviews and talking about how George Ritchie, I... I suggested the listeners go into YouTube and watch him talk about his near-death experience. It's just magical. But he also um, talked about the halls of learning and all these universities that were all – Gail, can you just speak on that for a minute? Yeah, I've heard this from quite a number of people, and they invariably are people who um, had extremely lengthy – cardiac arrest. George was had his cardiac arrest went on at least for nine minutes. Wow. They don't know how long he had been apparently dead before the Ward boy found his body, but any it, you know, there's no way by the medical books that George could have lived. Yeah, yeah. Not the most vibrant person his I've story. ever in life. It's and just- um, he said, as many have said, it's um, the way George put it, he said that he was in the presence of this being that he identified as Christ. And he said that this being was showing him into these different levels of reality. And he had been seeing one level where people were kind of walking around stupefied and, you know, trying to repeat something or whatever. But then he said, and I remember him saying, about Christ, and he said, and then with a wave of his arm of light, said the whole scene changed, and he was looking into this, what appeared to be a university. He said, if he said if you try to combine Caltech and MIT and the University of Virginia and, and just Harvard and Yale and Princeton and all try to squeeze them all together. He said, you can't even begin to imagine. Wow. He said he sort of found himself in something you could call a library. Yeah, yeah. Just one tiny section of this place. And he said the section he was looking at had to do with the holy books of the universe. Wow. How fascinating. Yeah. And so, but I've heard this from others that that knowledge is... um, you know that there's just halls of knowledge, right? Yes, yes. Learning. 
Very exciting. So, so Raymond, all these years, all this research, I mean, starting when you were so young, how, how has it, how do you feel like it's changed the way you walk in this life? Well, it's very hard to separate. I was so young when I met George Ritchie. I, I don't know. You know, I don't really know. I don't know because it's so, it started so young and it's been so intense. Yes. But it will, I will say that it's not something that I have just suddenly, I mean, I have sort of come to a state, Marla, when I don't know what else to say except that to my utter astonishment, there is an afterlife. Yes. Now, I'm not in any way trying to persuade anybody else of that. It's just, but I just have to be honest with people because uh, you mentioned Jeff Olson and, and Jeff O'Donnell. This is um, O'Driscoll. O'Driscoll. Yes. Um, yeah. And um, Jeff, uh, the Jeffs, Jeff was, Jeff Olson, a graphic artist, was in a horrendous car crash. He's, leg was smashed off. He lost it. He had a near-death experience. His wife was killed instantly in the wreck. One of his children was, in addition, I believe. And uh, so to make a long story short, when uh, Jeff was uh, recovering from his injury and, and um, uh, relating this experience to his, uh, the Jeff O'Driscoll, who's the emergency room doctor, the, the, um, the doctor acknowledged that while Jeff Olson was in this state of cardiac arrest, or, you know, in, the, in another world, that Jeff O'Driscoll was talking to uh, Jeff's departed wife. Yes. And, and, you know, I've heard lots of other cases of this. I mean, this is not the kind of thing your average local practitioner is going to tell you about. But the reason, I think, is simply because most of these guys are in private practice. They realize if the word gets around in town that they, you know, have had these remarkable experiences during the resuscitation of patients. It's, you know, I can understand the reluctance of many physicians. Yeah. But and and I know it took Dr. Adrist... I know it took Dr. Driscoll, I, I interviewed him just last week and took him a long time to, to, to get there, you know, to be able to, to actually talk about it. And then, you know, Eben Alexander, his experience, all these, these physicians that have had the actual experiences too. It's just, it's amazing. So Raymond, if people want to, I know you're pretty easy to find, but if people want to learn more about you, where, um, where can they find you? I know you have the lifeafterlife.com well, now. Lifeafterlife.com, yeah, and that's a good place to start. Okay, great. Well, thank you so much for being on the show. The thing on America's Most Wanted, that's, that's, <laughs> that's not you. No. Well, thank you, Raymond, and I can't wait to, to read you, the Mama. book and have you, you back on. Either. Let me know what you think. Okay. I definitely will. Okay, have a great evening. You too, Marla. I just appreciate this so much. Me too. Thank you, Raymond. Bye-bye. Thank you.
thanks all the people listening in. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for listening in today. If you want to learn more about the show, you can find us at interviewswithinnocence.com and on Facebook or Instagram at interviewswithinnocence. Please write me a message. Tell me what you liked and let me know what else you would like to hear. I would love to hear from you. And if you liked what you heard, please leave us an iTunes rating and review. It helps other listeners find the show. Thank you.